Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. In 1955, uh, Congress enacted a law requiring the addition of the words, in God we trust, to all of our currency. Big, bold letters, every coin, every bill, in God we trust. That law was enacted in 1955, signed into law by President Eisenhower, and in 1957, the bills and the coins bearing those words, in God we trust, began rolling out of the U.S. Treasury. A year before, in 1956, Congress, in another act, declared, in God we trust, our nation's official motto taking the place of the previous unofficial but de facto model, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. In God we trust. It says that on our currency. It's our official motto. And many Americans, the vast majority of Americans, do believe in God. However much patterns of church engagement and attendance have changed, however much the percentage of Americans claiming to be self-identifying as Christian has gone down, the vast majority of Americans still believe in God. Anywhere from 93 to 95% of Americans say that they believe in God. But what do we mean when we say God? Do we have the same image of God, the same understanding of God, the same vision of God? Or do we hold such distinct and different visions of God, understandings of God, that it's not quite accurate to say, in God we trust? Perhaps the money ought to say, in God's we trust. There's a pastor by the name of... um, Jeremy Treat, who's written about his high school basketball coach, he said that his coach was a classic old-school screamer who motivated by fear and shame. His voice was extremely powerful, and the only time he and his teammates ever heard it is when something went wrong, when they blew an assignment on defense or turned the ball over on offense, the whistle would sound, the practice would stop, and the screaming and the shame would begin. Their coach would get red in the cheeks, and he would actually foam at the mouth as he screamed at them so frequently that they would eventually have to wipe the spit off of their cheeks. They didn't know him outside of basketball. They only knew him in the confines of the court and the locker room, and yet they knew enough to know that for whatever reason, he was at heart an angry man. Anger was his basic approach to the world around How many of us have that kind of heart image of God? How many of us grew up hearing about a God who is angry, primarily angry? It's his default setting. It's his basic orientation toward the world. One of the most influential sermons in American history is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. It helped kick off the first Great Awakening, which swept through the colonies in the 1700s. You may be familiar with it, even if you haven't heard of it, you've probably been impacted by it. The central image in that sermon, in that, in that sermon, the central image employed by Jonathan Edwards was to picture us as spiders suspended by one slender thread above a pit of fire. 
That slender thread represented the mercy of God, the fire, of course, the anger and wrath of God. Both God's mercy and God's wrath are present in the image, but notice where Edwards put the emphasis. It's reflected in the title of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of a What? Angry God. 93 to 95% of Americans, you, your neighbors, believe in God. But what do we mean when we say God? It makes a difference what we see, what we believe, what we understand about God. It impacts the way we live with our families, our neighbors, the world all around. A few years ago, um, the... uh, Sorry... Uh, Paul Fraze and Christopher Bader published a book called America's Four Gods. They were convinced that although the vast majority of Americans believe in God, they hold quite distinct, different beliefs about God. And so using national polls and hundreds of interviews conducted all over the country, they, they dove deep into America's beliefs about God, what it is that we mean when we say the word God. They concluded that we don't believe in one God. We are not one nation under one God. We are instead one nation under four gods. And that's why their book is titled America's Four Gods. Those four gods are the authoritative God, the benevolent God, the critical God, and the distant God. Some of you may have heard about this before. I think I might have referenced it once before in a sermon. The benevolent God is one who is deeply engaged, frequently engaged in the world and judging, actively judging the world. That's the authoritative God. The benevolent God is also engaged in the world, but not judgmental. The critical God is not engaged, is sort of sitting back, set the world up, is letting it run, but is sitting back keeping score waiting for the day when he'll pass judgment. The distant God set the world up and sits back and is basically not involved and also not judging. Do what you will with what I have made. Believe it or not, those seem to be the four images that we have of God, the four heart images that we have of God. They are not all of us, not completely, but by and large, most of us have one of those basic images of God, and they affect the way that we worship God, understand God, love, and serve God. That's what we say we mean when we say God. What does God mean when God says God? This series on the goodness of God is based on the revelation of God's character to Moses for ancient Israel and for us today in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 in particular. You've just heard those words again. They are God's own self-revelation. Moses has asked to see the glory of God. God tells Moses, you cannot see my glory, but I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you. And so Moses ascends, goes up Mount Sinai, takes a place in the cleft of the rock where he can sort of get a glimpse of God, the backside of God, and as God passes by, causes all of his goodness to pass by Moses, God himself declares, the Lord, the Lord, a God what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but not clearing the the guilty, punishing iniquity. 
The first word in that uh, statement, that first word in that creed, the first word out of God's mouth, apart from his own name, the Lord, the Lord, is the word merciful. Mercy or compassion is front and center in the character of God, who God is, what God is like, who God will be for us as we walk with him through the world as it is, toward the world as it will be. Mercy, compassion is front and center in the character of God. We are sinners in the hands of a merciful God. I want to suggest to you this morning that mercy, not wrath, is God's default setting. Mercy, not wrath, is God's default setting, his basic orientation toward us and all. It's where God begins and what he goes back to. Mercy belongs to the character of God. You'll notice that anger or wrath isn't actually part of his character. Slowness of anger is, but anger itself is not. Anger is a response to evil, injustice, and suffering. It does not belong to God's person, God's character. It's not essential. It's not eternal. It's temporary. But mercy belongs to the very character of God. Mercy, not wrath, is God's default setting. You know, the word mercy in Hebrew is the word rakum or rahum. And it's related, it shares the same root as the, the Hebrew for womb, rahem. In Hebrew, emotions are almost always tied very concretely to a particular part of the Bible. Wrath is connected with the nose, and so to be angry is to have a hot nose. And it's easy to see why, right? When we get angry, our nostrils flare. And so someone who is angry is is, has a hot nose. Someone who is slow to anger, as we'll find in a couple of weeks, has a long nose. That's what the Hebrew literally means. God is merciful and gracious, long of nostril. Actually, in Hebrew, it says long of two nostrils. Compassion or mercy is related to something deeply internal. It's the mother love of God. It's deep affection from the belly from the center of our being, from our abdomen, comes the mercy of God, the compassion of God. Mercy is God's deep affection for us, deep care for us. It is God's mother love for us, which is why we find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child? or show no compassion for the child of her womb, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Or in Jeremiah 31, verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he the child I delight in? As often as I speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, I am deeply moved for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord the mercy of God, the compassion of God is the deep from the belly love of God for us and for all. His mercy is over all the things that he has made. Mercy, not wrath, is God's default setting. It's his basic orientation toward us 
and all. It's where he begins and what he comes back to. Both of those passages were spoken by God to God's people when they were experienced judgment and exile and hardship and suffering because of the paths that they have chosen and God gave them up to their choices and they suffered because of it. And yet God would not let go of them. God would not forget them. God would not wipe his hands of them, turn his back on them. Instead, he was turned toward them in love. He would never forget them. He would not let go of them because mercy, not wrath, is God's default setting. It's his basic orientation toward us and all. And therefore, when we come into a relationship with the God of all mercy, the God of all compassion, when we come into a relationship with that kind of God through faith in Jesus, we are invited, we are exhorted, we are called to be merciful as God himself is merciful. Jesus in Luke chapter 6 talks about loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, doing good to those who abuse us. He says that we ought to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. Mercy, not anger. Mercy, not rage. Compassion, not outrage, ought to be our default setting, our basic orientation to the world all around. Is it? Russell Moore who's uh, one of the editors of Christianity Today magazine, um, <clears throat> has, uh, has created a little bit of a controversy just recently. He was interviewed by NPR because he has just published a book called Losing Our Religion. It's an altar call, a sort of wake-up call to evangelical America. And he related in the interview that one of the reasons he wrote the book really hoping to help evangelical Christians and churches and pastors rediscover their own faith, one of the reasons he wrote the book is he received multiple phone calls and emails from evangelical pastors who were accused of being woke by church members because in their preaching, they referred to the teachings of Jesus, mentioned in passing things like, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, do good to those who hurt you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Mentioned in passing things like, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Multiple pastors related to Russell Moore uh, through phone calls and emails that they mentioned those teachings of Jesus in their sermons and had church members coming up to them after the service to ask where they got those liberal talking points. And when they remarked that they were quoting the teaching of Jesus, the response was not, wow, I'm sorry, my bad. Instead, it was, that's not relevant anymore. That makes us weak. I want to suggest that if we believe in Jesus and we believe the Bible, mercy Compassion, deep affection for the world around us ought to be our default setting. It is God's default setting. 
It's what God is like. Not all that God is like. That, that passage goes on, right? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. That does not mean never, ever angry. But slow to anger. Angry in response to the evil, injustice, and suffering in the world. But it never seems to overtake the mercy and grace and steadfast love and uh, faithfulness as we'll find that, that even God's judgment is redemptive. God is not vengeful. We are. As I said last week, God has wrath because He is love. We tend to invoke wrath over against love. God is love, but... That's not a biblical sentence. God is love, therefore. God is merciful. Therefore, because of his deep, unrelenting affection for us, because of those mercies that are new every day, sometimes he does discipline us, but mercy remains God's default setting, his basic orientation toward us and all. And when we believe in that God, a God of mercy and compassion, of deep affection, then like God, we are called to forgive and to act for the good of the world all around. I mean, that's how God's mercy gets put into action. And we sort of heard it referenced a little bit in that passage from Jeremiah. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he the child I delight in? As often as I speak against him, there is God's wrath. I still remember him. Therefore, I am deeply moved for him. I will surely have mercy on him, which means though he be judged, though he be exiled, I will bring him back home. God's mercy will get the last word. Thomas uh, Torrent was a, uh, he grew up in 1960s. Uh, Mobile, Alabama. Sorry, Thomas Tarrant. Uh, he grew up in the 60s in the middle of the civil rights movement. He was in high school at the time when the civil rights movement was launched and the Supreme Court was making um, a change, was making rulings that impacted life here in the South. He has written that as a young man in high school, he was deeply sympathetic with Governor George Wallace, who famously and infamously declared segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He started reading literature that was getting passed around his high school. It was white supremacist, anti-Semitic, and anti-communist. It told him that the civil rights movement was a communist plot, that the federal government was taken over by uh, communist infiltrators, and before too long, his fear of a changed and changing world became hatred and hostility toward that world, and he joined the Ku Klux Klan. He was arrested while trying to plant a bomb in the home of a prominent Jewish businessman along with a friend. He was tried and found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Not long after he was imprisoned, he escaped, but then was recaptured and then sent to isolation. Placed in a six-foot by nine-foot cell in, in, the, in a maximum security unit, he writes that to keep from going crazy, he started reading con constantly. 
That reading eventually led him to the Bible, to the New Testament, and to the Gospels. But as I read the Gospels in my prison cell, he writes, my eyes were opened in a way that went beyond simply understanding the words on the page. My sins came to mind one after another. Conviction grew, and with it, tears of repentance. I needed God's forgiveness, and I knew it came only through trusting Jesus, who had given his life to pay for my sins. One night, I knelt on the concrete floor of my cell and prayed a simple prayer, confessing my sins and asking Jesus to forgive me, take over my life, and do whatever he wanted to with it. He began, or he kept reading the Bible daily, and as he did, a whole new world opened up to him. He writes that early on, God delivered him from hate, and he began to grow in love for others. Friendships developed with black inmates and others who were quite different from himself. After serving eight years in prison, through an extraordinary turn of events, he was actually granted parole to attend university. That set in motion a series of developments, which over the next 40 years led him first into campus ministry, then pastoral ministry in a racially mixed church, and then finally to a long ministry of teaching and writing at the C.S. Lewis Institute. He experienced the mercy of God, and it changed his whole framework, his basic orientation to the world around him. Mercy, not wrath, is God's basic orientation to us and to all. Mercy, not wrath, is the basic orientation of all followers of Jesus to the world all around, however much changed and changing that world may be. God's deep affection for us becomes God's deep affection for all in and through us. Be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. Vast majority of Americans say that they believe in God, and they do, but which God do we believe in? What is that God like? How does that God engage with us and with the world? What kind of life do we live when we walk with that God. Let us pray. God of mercy, we give thanks for the deep, unrelenting affection, care that you have for us, each one of us, all of us, and everyone we know. We give thanks for the mercies that are new every morning and for the invitation to be merciful as you are merciful to approach the world around us open-hearted, with open hands, eager to love and to serve, eager to be the hands and feet of Jesus, who said that the merciful will be blessed, peacemakers called children of God. God, we give thanks for your mercy and pray that we might walk in that mercy all week long in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. 
Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.